In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Eight years ago marked the launch of a new era for Disney's most enduring character with the release of the ever-popular Mickey Mouse series of shorts. With the many, many dozens of shorts that have debuted since, we're all even more acquainted with the unforgettable Mouse and his friends on irreverent and heartwarming adventures, and I'm thrilled to bring on composer Christopher Willis, the person behind the Mickey Mouse cartoon shorts in terms of the music and uh, Mickey and Minnie's runaway railway attraction at Disney's Hollywood Studios, as well as Elise Willis, a prolific vocalist for TV and film, including co-writing the Nothing Can Stop Us Now song from the attraction uh, with Chris. So without any further ado, I am so thrilled to bring both Chris and Elise on Notably Disney. Let's get to that interview. Adding the tunes, pun intended, to the zany world of Mickey Mouse are today's guests on Notably Disney, Christopher Willis and Elise Willis. Chris is the Annie Award-winning and Emmy-nominated composer of the Disney Mickey Mouse series of shorts, um, also known for his work on the hit series Veep and The Lion Guard on Disney Junior. Elise is a vocalist on tons of TV shows, including Mickey Mouse and The Lion Guard, as well as for films like La La Land, Big Hero 6, and Star Wars The Last Jedi, just to name several. Uh, quite a prolific uh, set of experiences for sure for uh, each of you and both of you collabor co collaboratively. Um, they're an accomplished couple in the music world and they also run Arbory Ward Studios. Uh, without any further ado, I'd, I'd like to welcome on to Notably Disney, Elise and Chris. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Brett. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Nice to it's be a here. pleasure. Oh, it's quite a pleasure for, for me too. Uh, I know we have a lot to cover because of so many just fascinating experiences that you've each had and then um, through the Mickey Mouse world, um, many collaborative ones as well. And I'd like to begin with each of you 
um, just to, to kind of learn more about your musical roots. I've certainly done some reading on each of you, but I want to make sure um, that our listeners are acquainted uh, with your backgrounds. Um, so I imagine some of the questions we'll do kind of back and forth. Um, others may be specifically targeted to you, Chris, or to you, Elise. But I'm wondering if, Chris, maybe we can get started with you. Your musical styles, your range of musical styles, your versatility, it's on full display in Mickey Mouse, uh, which we'll talk about later, um, that really stems from your rich roots in classical music and musicology. So for folks who may not be as familiar with you, could you share a little bit about how and when your musical background commenced? Oh, sure. Um, well, um, I, uh, I grew up in England, as you can tell from my accent. Um, and I learned the piano as a, as a kid, sort of very much a rite of passage in middle England to have piano lessons. Um, but I, I'm unlike uh, a lot of my friends got completely obsessed with it and were sort of besotted with the piano uh, all the way through my childhood. Um, and particularly making things up and trying to tinker and understand how music worked. Um, and I ended up going to Cambridge for the Cambridge uh, undergrad uh, in music. Um, this, um, this is not sort of... Uh, um, a course that trains you to become a pianist or trains you in one particular thing, but as a slightly old fashioned uh, music course. And certainly then this was in the nineties, there were a lot, of, a lot of people around who were similar to me in being really interested in, in pastiche and in copying things. And it's sort of the way various compulsory bits of the course were, you had to write a fugue in your final exams that was pretty much a sort of J.S. Bach pastiche and you had to write Haydn string quartet pastiches and Schubert song pastiches. There are a lot of organists because Cambridge has a lot of chapels that need organists. I wasn't one of them, but a lot of them and they all love to improvise and make up things in the style of different composers. So I feel like um, I spent a lot of years um, uh, as a young person make, making things up, but, but listening to styles and trying to copy them. It was just sort of the way that the way that we talked about things, uh, my friends and I, when I was a student. Um, uh, and after that, I sort of wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I sort of sort of bounced around the classical world because I became a pianist for a few years and then I wasn't sure about that. And I went back to university and, uh, and got into musicology um, and teaching those same courses in pastiche composition that I'd, that I'd liked so much uh, when I'd done them. Um, and so, yeah, if you if you if you fast forward to my starting to work on things like Mickey Mouse, it just felt very, very familiar to to really kind of uh, dive into lots of different styles, a very, very, very familiar kind of challenge. Um, although the styles that I was being asked to do on Mickey Mouse and on, on the ride uh, were not the same as, as the ones that I've been doing as a uh, as an undergrad. But that kind of world of of. Um, of studying stuff and trying to uh, trying to mimic it musically um, is sort of something that that, uh, that that yeah that 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 goes way back with me. That's right. Well, and I and it seems like those same qualities that enabled you to be a scholar of music, a practitioner of music, have really translated well to, as you mentioned, certainly, which we'll talk about shortly with Mickey Mouse, where you are exhibiting your just uh, 
just this legacy of, of musical styles that have encompassed our world over the century. So it feels like that based on your background, you are perfectly positioned to be able to translate that knowledge and experimentation into this type of setting. Well, it was very weird, actually. I never, um, once I decided sometime in my 20s that I really wanted to be a film composer and I, I came over to LA kind of when I was 28, 29-ish, I really seemed, felt like everything I'd done in musicology in particular had been, uh, you know, a waste of time. I wasn't quite sure what I'd been doing uh researching obscure french baroque composers and um and and learning how to do footnotes and um, music analysis diagrams and stuff but if really in one of those strange ways that life um has uh once i started on mickey mouse i really did feel like i was um i was researching and i was doing musicology um just in a, in a more informal way but it was a very familiar feeling to you know to to, to be asked to write um, samba or or Bollywood or something, and to and to just set off on an odyssey through the internet, making notes and reading things, and uh, and you know studying studying instruments and scales and just listening to things and trying to understand, um, trying to hear patterns and trying to understand what I was listening to. Um, so it, it, um, I was very fortunate that those that two things that outwardly seem so different doing cartoons and being a musicologist actually um, turned out to, to, to be really quite similar. That's really incredible and I'll be really interested to see how that manifests as our conversation continues and I want to turn it over to you Elise. Your musical background is also very rich. Um, I understood you were playing uh, the viola for a number of years, singing in choirs for major symphonies. Could you talk about some of the really robust and impactful experiences in your musical upbringing? Sure. At first, I have to say I'm amazed that you found some place that cited me as a violist. <laughs> I'm not sure I would really uh, refer to myself as that anymore, but, uh, but you're quite enough. right. There is there is some background there. Yet. The internet is on fire with yeah. your viola skills. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, uh, thanks for asking. So yes, I started, uh, sort of had a similar trajectory or a trajectory that a lot of kids have, you know, where you start with one instrument and you move to another. Uh, when I was six, I think my parents got tired of me banging on the piano with no guidance whatsoever. So, so I started piano lessons when I was six. And then when I was nine, I was able to take an instrument in school and I chose the violin. So I actually started on the violin and then I moved to the viola when I was 13. Actually, it wasn't really by accident, but I, it, my hand was sort of forced a bit because I went to a chamber music summer camp. And if you were a violinist, you were supposed to learn the first and second violin parts to, I think it was a Mozart uh, string quartet. And I was just not quite good enough yet to play the first violin part. So my teacher suggested that I learn the second and the viola part just in case they needed another violist. And of course they did. So <laughs> I ended up playing viola that week. I think it was actually, it's pretty janky. It was like a violin that was restrung as a viola. <laughs> I don't think I knew that. That's yeah. amazing. That's it must have sounded so good. But, oh my God, it was so <laughs> fabulous. Uh, Nobody was good. I spent like that whole summer learning how to read alto clef. And then by the time I was done with that summer camp, I really 
discovered that I enjoyed playing the viola more than I enjoyed playing the violin. I think the rich tones and I never really enjoyed being super high up in positions. So anyway, I switched to viola after that and I never really looked back and that was all fine. Um, I also did a lot of community theater as a kid, a lot of musical theater. That was a big part of my existence and my sort of musical background. And then uh, I also took singing lessons. Uh, I think I started maybe when I was about 10, um, which is arguably a bit young to start as a singer, um, but I think it all contributed to the sort of musical tapestry that made me who I am. And then uh, got more serious in high school, started doing choir in high school. And uh, yeah, just kind of kept all of that up and, and played in local symphonies as well, uh, trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do in music. I'm not sure I really had it figured out when I went to college, but I decided that I wanted to focus on singing. I did still play though at some viola throughout college. So, so that was a really nice way to keep myself sort of diversified in, in music. And uh, I ended up going to UCLA for um, music education actually. Uh, sort of a long story with that, but uh, I'll just say briefly that my college experience was a little, little traumatic, um, just trying to sort out both what I wanted to do, but also what my professors thought I was capable of, and they tried to push me in, in certain directions, um, largely into, you know, real operatic singing, because that's what most universities focus on if you're a vocal major, and while I, I definitely do do a lot of classical singing, I wasn't necessarily interested in the sort of opera singer career path, um, or did I really have the voice to be like a major opera singer? Just, it wasn't really my instrument. Um, but I also had all these other in interests and in other musical styles in both listening and singing other styles. And that was not what I would say was encouraged. And I feel like they didn't really know what to do with me. So they kind of just pushed me to the side instead of saying, you know, you have an interesting background. Why don't we see what else you could do? And so um, I got very lucky because at the end of college, I auditioned for the LA Master Chorale, which is a major professional chorus in LA and does not only our own concert season, but we also do a lot of work with LA Phil. And I was super, super fortunate that I got into the choir at the end of college. And so that's, that kept me, you know, in a, in a professional musical career in some capacity. And then lots of other work uh, followed from that, including session work on films and TV scores and video games, et cetera. So, so I was very, very lucky that that happened because it, it's, an interesting question, you know, how I would have stayed in music had that not happened. But, uh, but you know, it all, it all ended up for the best um, because as a session singer singing on all these different projects, it's a good thing that I have different interests and can sing in different styles. Uh, that is a, a positive feature of what I do instead of being a detriment or something that holds me back. So really for me, it was just a matter of finding the kind of job that I needed to do to utilize the skills that I had. That's really helpful to, to learn about. And as I'm listening to both of you and my own understandings of, of your journeys is that in many ways they were distinct paths, but yet what, each, what both of you have in common is this notion of versatility and in a sense are like Renaissance people in terms of your, your musical talents and how you channel that in different ways, whether it's in singing in your case, Elise or Chris in terms of um, your, your musicology background and 
um, that's those talents have definitely translated um, to to some of the work that we'll discuss shortly. But I, I am curious, how did how did your particular paths converge in terms of finding one another and eventually collaborating with one another too? Yeah, yeah well, it's a good story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, a lot of people assume that we must have met at a you know at a, a, a movie session or something where I would have been on one side of the glass working uh, with a composer and Elise would have been in the choir. But that's, um, that's not what happened at all. Um, uh, Elise was working at the front desk in a gym, which happened to be round the corner uh, from Hans Zimmer's studio, Remote Control Productions, which is which I had a room at. I was working uh, in the studio of uh, Rupert Grigson Williams. Actually, possibly by then I was bouncing around. I, I was I was I was working intermittently for Rupert and for his brother Harry um, Gregson Williams and for Henry Jackman, um, and uh, I was spending almost all my time at the studio and, and in desperate need of getting some exercise. So uh, I, I went down the road to join this gym. And you had already gone into Mastercraft by then, but this was, this, you literally just graduated. I, right? Yeah, I just graduated. I maybe when we met had maybe done one performance with the Mastercraft. I was incredibly new. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, so he, uh, he came in, uh, there was a big glass entrance at the front door. So I could see people like walking in and I, he definitely caught my eye. So I kind of <laughs> sat up straighter and then he turned the corner and we saw each other. And I think it would be fair to say that there was a definite spark for both yeah. of us. And uh, yeah, he came up to the front desk. I uh, gave him a tour of the gym. And while we were on the tour, he asked me what else I did. And I said, I was a musician. And he said, oh, me too. And, you know, everyone's like a musician or a writer or an actor or something sure. in L.A. So I wasn't really sure how seriously to take this. But then the it was more one of those conversations from my point of view, I knew that, that there was I knew I had to ask you what else you did because I knew there was going to be something. And I mm. sort of weirdly and in weird and way knew it was going to be interesting, like that it might be music. It's one of those weird. That sounds slightly far fetched. But yeah. No, I know. I know what you mean. There was a, a vibe. There was a vibe. Us, yeah. There was instant vibe. Uh, but yeah, then we started talking about um, musicology because uh, UCLA, where I went, has quite a good musicology program, and and he knew a lot of my professors. So I was like, okay, so he, you know, <laughs> he knows his academics. And then when he left, I googled him and I saw all the films that he'd worked on, and I was like, oh my gosh, he's really legit. <laughs> I mean, I was I was doing additional. I was I wasn't legit, but I mean, I, you, I had. I was not. In I the, was working. I wasn't in the industry at yeah. all at that point, so it was really impressive to me. And then he would come in. Uh, to do workouts or purportedly to do workouts, <laughs> possibly just to flirt with me. <laughs> and uh, we would stand up at the front desk for like long periods of time talking yeah. about things like fugue and counterpoint and really nerdy music stuff. And um, you told me you didn't like Wagner. I remember. Did I? Uh, yeah. Um, but you did like Verdi. Um, <laughs> Anyway. That's interesting. Yeah, I yeah. wonder if I would agree with that still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I'm sure I said things that I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> said things that I regret. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow, that's a, that we'll, ha we'll have a longer discussion yeah, about yeah, that yeah, later. Um, yeah, and then I was, I was really flirting my butt off. <laughs> let's, let's just say that. And uh, yeah, and finally I was like, 
I'm just going to ask him out. This is ridiculous. Like we're clearly both into each other. And I was literally like moments away from doing it. And Chris asked me if I would sing on some library music that he'd written. Um, so he, he hired me, um, having not heard me sing. Um, I was being very English. I was like, I, I can't, I don't know if I'm reading the signs right. I mean, it feels like <laughs> she were, we were both flirting a lot. So it was very stupid, but I, thought, you, I, can't just, I can't just ask her out. That's just, oh, it's so unoriginal. Uh, anyway, so, but this is, this is a genius solution actually dreamed up by Rupert Gregson-Williams. He said that I should ask her to sing on this trailer album that we were doing. Um, <laughs> so yes, I showed up at his studio and um, had to read some like, it wasn't like super difficult music, but it, to read on the spot, yeah. it was it was like a fast five eight and it was in like a made up language. And I was singing all of the soprano and alto parts, went up to like high Bs and Cs and you know, yeah. I, I really the, liked this guy, so I was trying to impress him. <laughs> I imagine the surroundings are quite intimidating because Rupert had that nice room and it was at Yeah, Zimmer's I mean, place. it was at Zimmer's place and, yeah. and I really hadn't started session singing at that point. So this is like Head kind of one of my the, first sessions. Yeah, yeah. she was amazing. She was, she, uh, <laughs> and she was a perfectionist too. It was all very, uh, was all very attractive it was it was a foretaste of the feast to come of our marriage <laughs> more or less right <laughs> yeah. uh so then yeah. yeah we got together shortly after that and that was um like the end of 2009 2010 and now we've been yeah. married almost nine years yeah that's right yeah well congratulations i think as you were relaying this really compelling uh, love story i'm thinking to myself what would be the musical style of like <laughs> of you, Chris, walking into the gym and Elise greeting him and like, mm. what, yeah, what would, if this was turned Definitely into a movie? Definitely cheesy rom-com music. Cheesy rom-com, okay. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you were asking how we, uh, how we then ended up collaborating. Right, right. Um, yeah. Uh, which is sort of another, another chapter um, and, and relates to the strange um, status of the Mickey Mouse shorts at Disney TVA where they, they, nobody quite knew what they were. They were an unusual kind of show for Disney TVA. Um, uh, and one of the ways they were unusual is of course they were very short, but another way was that um, they weren't set up at the start like an Elena of Avalor or uh, something like that, where it's known at the very start that this is a show that's gonna have a song every episode and we're gonna have a composer who does the underscore and we're gonna have a songwriter or a pair of songwriters who do the songs. Um, uh, there was no songwriter, um, but it gradually, the show quickly evolved so that it did seem to have songs sometimes because it was, it wanted to do all these old classic Disney things that the very earliest cartoons did. And that meant the music was getting more and more sort of entangled. And I think the more they got to know you and your right. abilities and your strengths and, you know, how good you were, they were like, oh, we can really do some, some more fun uh, things with the music that maybe we hadn't originally planned on doing. Um, and I would do some songs where where Paul Rudish, the showrunner, would write the lyrics or Derek Barkman, the writer, would write the lyrics. And then I, I would fiddle with the lyrics and change the lyrics. I had a sense that the, the songs that we were aspiring to write were in that tradition of uh, Irving Berlin and Sherman mm. Brothers and that that extraordinary mid-century tradition where the songs are, 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 are so good. We're so, we're so familiar with them that we don't realize perhaps how great they are. And I, I just felt that, that we, were, we were in danger of not doing the songs well enough because we didn't have, um, you know, it, we just weren't set up that way. And it just sort of evolved that at least being totally steeped in all that stuff started helping out 
Um, well, and also I should say that when the show started, um, they, again, they were finding their feet in all kinds of ways of how the show was going to be put together and how the music was going to come together and, and what the needs were for that show. And as you know, from having seen the show, it takes place all over the world. It, there's, you know, all kinds of different storylines. And with that came lots of needs for um, specialized kind of vocals. Um, I mean, yeah, all, right. all, the whole music, uh, all the instrumentalists and everything were specialized, but um, definitely vocals. And for Yodelberg, which is one of the first episodes, um, oh, yeah. I don't even know who it was, someone at Disney uh, on the music team found this father and daughter who yodeled in um, Utah, I think, right? So you had to yeah. do a remote session. And I mean, it all turned out great in the episode, but the work behind the scenes was, I think, a lot more than than they had bargained for. Yeah, it just, yeah, it was just do one really of those live streams with yeah. Utah and finding them and, and but worrying. Yeah, just even the work of finding them in the first yeah. place was a lot more than they bargained for. And so uh, at some point, someone was like, wait, Chris, your wife is a singer, right? Like, can she find singers for us? <laughs> like, we'd may way rather, you know, pay her to do that um, yeah. than have to do it ourselves. Okay. It's probably Mark Carafillis, someone who had who has so many things to do at TVA. Yeah, I mean, must have people thought, are I cannot spend insanely hard over there. Two weeks finding every single weird singer that, that, these, <laughs> exactly. that this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, and of course, when they said that, I was like, yes, definitely. I would love to do that. So we're sort of moving into what we refer to as vocal contracting. So if you have a group of singers or, I mean, even, even one singer, but if you have a group, you definitely have a vocal contractor who is usually singing on the project as well, but is in charge of finding the right people and handling all the paperwork and et cetera. Uh, going, also being the go-between from the composer to the singers, because sometimes there's a language barrier in the sense that there are certain um, terms or phrases that singers understand to mean certain things and sometimes you kind of have to have a, a translator you know um, so so I started doing that for Chris and, and for the Mickey so by the time it really came to yes. to us having the opportunity to write songs together I was already really involved with the show on the singing side and knew all of the creatives yeah. on the show really well at that point so it wasn't like this weird thing like oh my wife does yeah, stuff. yeah you know they, they knew me really well so it just seemed like a, a natural progression so by the time let's say of around runaway railway there was some doubt when when imagineering first they were they were wondering do we need to find a completely outside lyricist but somewhere around there it sort of started to feel much more official that that you know we would we would write the songs mm -hmm. um in this way that, that we do now. Well, and I, there's so much that I'd like to dive into. And um, what, I, what I really appreciate about what you shared is just the intricacies uh, involved in each of these episodes. You know, in the case of, um, as you mentioned, the Yodelberg short, where again, we're talking about for many of the shorts, at least initially, three and a half minutes. And your role as a composer, Chris, and, and certainly your involvement to Elise is to be able to capture so many different styles according to what the cartoon is asking for in terms of setting, in terms of tone, um, in terms of which of the characters are on screen, perhaps there's introductions of unfamiliar characters. So I guess what I'm wondering is in terms of translating that musical versatility into something that's very short form and where you're having to produce so many of these what inspirations come into, into the 
factor uh, come, to, come to surface here when there is such a vast number of quantity and also just a vast variety of themes? Um, well, in some ways, the international ones were the trickiest, but in, in one particular way, they were actually the most inspiring or I don't know if I want to say easiest, but one thing that would happen on the international ones is that um, the director and uh, and the showrunners generally, um, uh, Alonso Ramirez Ramos it seemed to end up doing quite a lot of the international ones and Alonso, he was directing and he would have a tendency to get really, really uh, into the music himself. So by the time I came on board, he could give me a crash course in all the things he'd already been listening to. Um, he even started, this is super nerdy, but inside baseball kind of thing, but this is great. The, the Imagineering library is just down the road from Disney TVA. There's a library that's been around for the Imagineers since uh, relatively early in the life of Disneyland and of Imagineering. Um, and it feels just like a community library. It's a full library. You go in, you know, you, you show your ID, you go past the desk, you know, um, and it has music as well as, as well as books. And Alonso started using that library and taking me to go to that library. Um, incredibly useful. But um, what would happen is we'd have so many things that we wanted to do that were very colorful and vivid that there'd be too many things to fit into the episode. So, so it would be a question of, of trying to find room for all these vivid colors. Um, uh, uh, and that's sort of a nice place to be in rather than, rather than the opposite, you know, rather than having, having this time to fill and, and not knowing how to do it. Um, uh, I think it was, um, it was important to, uh, to, to try and tie each one together as much as possible so that it didn't just sort of fall apart. Um, important to sort of find the place in the episode where you'd have the biggest chance to, to, to do something musically. I mean, they were short, but often the characters didn't talk very much. So in a strange way, they often didn't seem too, too short musically. Um, you know, oftentimes a composer is, is, is sitting under dialogue and only has these tiny moments um, to, to, to speak without anybody speaking. So um, uh, in many ways, they didn't feel, it didn't feel too constrained. As long as I, uh, as long as I was organized about things and as long as, as long as my theme itself sort of wasn't, as long as the theme itself was, was fitted, the, fitted the episode, I actually often felt like I had, I did have just enough space in a couple of places in the episode to really kind of spread my wings and, and do, um, uh, do the sorts of things I wanted to. Well, let's kind of uh, explore that a little bit further because I appreciate you mentioned um, visiting the Imagineering Library and, and certainly both of you through these experiences and through your own experiences as consumers of music um, have been very well acquainted with Disney's history of music. And, and one example that I could think of is the, one of my favorite shorts uh, from Mickey Mouse, which is Down the Hatch, which involves uh, Mickey, yes. and, right, right. So Mickey and Goofy going inside Donald. So you, so Chris, there are musical nods to Adventures Through Inner Space, the uh, you know the extinct attraction from Disneyland's Tomorrowland. Yes, Do very good. 
Donald sings Miracles from Molecules in the closing credits. Can you talk about as just one example, because mind you, I know there's many, many, many dozens of shorts that one could discuss and, and how you uh, provide callbacks to um, different things from Disney history. But can you kind of illustrate, if you recall with that example, how that surfaced? Yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of this really comes from Paul Rudish. Paul Rudish um, was the one that had the idea for, for, for this kind of reboot. Um, uh, Disney, in the broadest possible sense, had wanted something, some way, some vehicle for Mickey Mouse. And um, there were various proposals, so I gather. But this was Paul's idea that the way to do it was through short cartoons that were very much uh, inspired by the oldest ones. In fact, having all sorts of things that people don't remember the oldest ones had, like for instance, characters speaking in, in foreign languages, which Paul is always quick to point out was not his idea, but is something that, that, that you see in the shorts in the thirties. Um, uh, somewhere very early on, the idea emerged that the shorts would be steeped in Disney lore, in Disney legends and mythology um, and luckily, Paul is well placed to do that, as are a lot of the other people that end up working on the show. Um, at, at an early stage, they all would have been much better placed than I was to know what those things were. So the ideas about what to do musically um, in terms of tying things in would have come from them. Um, at this point, I mean, I've spent lots of years now thinking about Disneyland and, and looking at the scores. And so some of the some of the nods and references might even come from me. But but. Um, but still, Paul is 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 a sort of uh, Yoda of all of this, and um, and and there are lots <laughs> really of other people on the show who are who are who are very knowledgeable. Um, uh, and we always know. I mean, from an early stage with the, with the shorts being on YouTube, we would know that people would get the references. So it almost became a task to try to make them more and more ambitious and more and more strange, um, uh, knowing that 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 some, a lot of people would still get them even though they were very arcane. So, um, so Paul was very preoccupied with adventures through inner space. Um, uh, adventure is singular, isn't it? Adventure through inner space um, and told me all about it. And, and, and we went off looking um, uh, for old kind of uh, um, Cinecam footage that people had taken in the 60s and 70s of it. And of course the, the soundtrack is, is, is easy to get hold of. Um, and this was part of a learning curve for me in starting to understand how ambitious the soundtracks for those rides had really been, which I hadn't realized um, at first, you know, the, the model of, of, of having an original song and building the ride around the song. Uh, so I was learning all of that about um, uh, miracles from molecules and adventure through inner space. Um, I, can, I can actually get um, in touch with uh, Booker White, who as well as being uh, one of the main um, copyists in town, uh, um, also, I'm not quite sure how all this works, but he certainly has access to the library, the archives of Disney scores. He's uh, also a bit like Yoda. He is I rather. I think they both embody yeah. Yoda qualities. Very wise. In fact, if, <laughs> yes. if I'm, you know, a lot of, a lot of these, um, these, these, Disney people uh, are following a vocation as much as doing a job. So, so Booker will help me or will will point something out if I don't know it. Um, so I certainly know that I saw 
a lead sheet for miracles from molecules. I might have seen a vocal chart from a, the odd vocal arrangement. A lot of the scores do disappear, but it, it is possible if I really want to, to, to go off digging and to do a lot of, um, uh, uh, a lot of homework. Um, uh, yeah, there was a, I, this is not uh, down the hatch, but, um, but you know, so, so, so a lot of it ends up being just audio. So for instance, there, there's the, that sort of experimental sound in Adventure Through in a Space that has all those guitars with, with tremolo on them and crazy reverbs and things. I, I mean, I never found any scores for any of that. I, I, did, I did all my, I did lots of nodding and winking towards that in my soundtrack, but I have to do that kind of thing just, just by ear. Um, there was a big one that I had to do by ear later on um, uh, Nature's Wonderland, um, mm. uh, where when we get to the end, um, we used um, a piece of music that I think if you're over a certain age is, is quite famous, or if you're within a certain Disney universe is, is familiar, but nobody else knows anything about it. And that's the Rainbow Caverns music that was at the end right. of the nature's, uh, the mine train through nature's wonderland ride, all of which is gone now and is all replaced by, um, uh, by the, oh, what's it actually called? I'm forgetting. Uh, it's the, Big, Thunder it's, it's, uh, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, which, uh, which has lots of very, very nerdy references on that ride to the old ride that doesn't exist anymore. But uh, I, that, that was a piece that I really, really wanted to get the score up to. And Booker worked incredibly hard, literally going around the library and opening up boxes and going into basements and stuff, trying to find it. And he never could find it. It just seems to disappear. So I had to reconstruct uh, the, the Rainbow Caverns uh, by ear. Um, well, and they wanted it and, to be an exact quote. I mean, yeah. so Chris mm. works really hard to, I mean, gosh, he spent ages mm. listening to that and trying to like dig out all the layers <laughs> and get everything right. It's And then it's you really did all the, I did yeah. the vocals on that. The vocals, I, and you'd work really, really hard kind of listening. Because oh, well, I was to trying this. to match this, the original singer as much as I could. I'm wow. still not still not a hundred percent happy with how I did on that, but <laughs> that's really tough when you're trying to actually be someone else. I mean, we've, we've run into that a couple of times too, because there's been a couple of snow white references <laughs> and <laughs> let me tell you, she is insane. That voice. I mean, she I don't know. Like, obviously she is, but like when you're actually trying to sound like her, like as much as possible, you, then you really realize how insane her voice is. So we have, we sort of have a little bit of digital trickery that, that we've worked out to, to get me to be close to Snow White, but blimey, I don't know how anyone could ever really sound like her again. That was a voice. You end up, you spend so much time on these things and looking at photos, you have an eerie relationship to it all. And if you ever come across a new piece of information about one of these composers or one of these things, it's. I don't know, it starts being a bit eerie because you've spent so much time kind of virtually in their company. Um, you meet someone who says, oh, I knew Buddy Baker, you know, bloody, bloody, blah. blah, blah. Suddenly this sort of extra splurge of information that, that you get about this person whose who's manuscripts you've been looking at for all these years. Well, at the risk of sounding like a fanboy, what I really admire about both of you and, and in collaboration with the, the Mickey Mouse shorts is, is that notion of balancing honoring Disney's heritage, but also making it contemporary and exciting for a new generation of kids and families and people of all ages. And there's that, there's that balance. And I think it really comes through when you see an episode, uh, a short like um, 
like down the hatch or, or others where there are those cues, um, but it also feels very, very much at a good pace and something that people uh, can follow and, and want to rewatch again and again. They're that's, that's very great. rewatchable, aren't they? They're, they're so much fun. I was just yeah. going to say, I'm, I'm going to uh, take this opportunity to pat myself on the back for just a moment. Go uh, for it. In that when Chris and I were dating, I forced him to go to Disneyland with right, me. Right. Very much, I would say, against his will. I mean, he was happy to do it to make me happy, I think. But I'm not sure he really had much interest himself because he didn't you know, I'm from California and uh, not Southern California, but um, not too far away. So it was easy to come down to Disneyland, you know, I mean, at least once a year, probably since I was I don't know, like a year and a half, but often many times. And then when I came to college down here, I had an annual pass and a bunch of my friends work at the park. And so, you know, I really feel connected to the park and, uh, you know, this era of Disney. Um, in a way that Chris just, you know, being in England and being, yeah. being a little older than I was too, because I was like really young and impressionable when Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast came out and he was a little bit older. And so I'm, I've been, I've spent some time like trying to bring him into my world <laughs> to be a part of my world. I was just going to say, say, yeah, sorry, I was <laughs> nice addition there. there. Yep. Yeah. You are low hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, totally. but yeah, I, I think I think the first time we went to Disneyland, you were a bit baffled by the whole thing. I was very resistant, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I would. I remember saying something like, "Why would you want to just surround yourself with copies of things rather than just going and seeing the actual things in the world? You know, going to the real Paris or the real jungle." Or but then, but then we had. I had a friend who had a pretty high up position in mm. Disneyland and he but he also was really steeped in the history of Disneyland and so he sort of gave us his own little tour and I think that that helped you that helped understand and then you know then we went like another time or two and every time you started to enjoy it more and you started to understand it more and then the Mickey job came up yeah and uh, I just would like to think that I helped and Maybe, I don't know, maybe things would have turned out differently if I had been forcing Disney down your throat. If I'd known nothing about it, that would have been really, I mean, they had to, they had enough trouble explaining to me what Leave it to Beaver was, or <laughs> I Dream of Genie, or Dragnet, or really any American TV before about 1985, when, when the Brits and the Americans finally started <laughs> selling TV to each other. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 I just didn't know what to make of it at first. And it, it gradually dawned on me that this is, you know, this, this place, Disneyland, is, is um, it's, it's part of the arts. It's, it's, it's sort of at the intersection of, of Hollywood and Broadway and something else, something, something more like, you know, making uh, clocks or, 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 you know, <laughs> Um, water fountains in 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 the 18th century or something you know this kind of ma making mechanical objects but but you know a ride would break down and uh particularly one of the older rides and yeah, like pinocchio we were on once yeah, and it broke down and we'd walk through and walking past the the painted flats you'd really suddenly suddenly I, uh, 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 something would spark and i would realize the artistry of what we were seeing and how clever it was and how 
how in a way how it, how it falls apart when the neon lights come on um just how magical and clever it all is and how how close it is in in terms of craft to the movies of that same period um and to to all the magic of of theater um gradually as particularly through the oldest rides i really started to get um to get enthusiastic about it and i, I mean if i hadn't been for you I also wouldn't have seen the way it's sort of part of life for people in, mm-hmm. in California, that for Californians, they kind of go a lot, they become very familiar with it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And that really dovetailed with then talking to the Mickey crew over the years. Um, and weirdly then set me up for doing sure. a, doing a ride mm-hmm. for real and, sure. um, and, and meeting people who are even 10 times more <laughs> obsessed with all this stuff. Uh, yeah. Well, let's maybe segue over to that then, because I think this is a really natural transition. So you'd been working on the Mickey Mouse shorts for for a few years already, and again, presented the opportunity to um, compose the score for the very first Mickey Mouse ride or attraction in a a Disney theme park. Um, Certainly there had been experiences like visiting Mickey's house, but not necessarily going on an adventure with those characters. Chris, what were some of the unique challenges that emerged in thinking about how how this world that you had helped create via these shorts would come to life, really, um, via this physical attraction? And then, um, and then similarly, um, Elise, I'm interested in learning about um, your collaboration in in co-writing the "Nothing Can Stop Us Now" song. Um, well, it certainly is. It certainly is very, very different. Um, uh, I had, um, I'd done the music to some plays when I was much younger that had involved some strange ad hoc problems. You know, can we have these two pieces playing at the same time over each other? Um, some video games that involved looping pieces round. Um, I, and I, I enjoyed these ad hoc problems. Um, so it was, it, 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 there were a lot more and it was much higher stakes, but in a way it was a continuation of, of, of some of those, um, of some of those things. The Imagineers did a great, did a, a great job of as much as possible making it feel like a cartoon that runs from beginning to end. And Kevin Rafferty, who was in charge of the whole thing, was, was adamant at any stage that it should, if there was any question or doubt or something to, or problem to, to, to uh to solve one way or another the solution was always to try and make it as much like the unfolding of a cartoon as possible um uh you do have you have areas where um the person at the front of the train will hear the start of the new piece but won't hear the end of the outgoing piece and the person at the back of the train will have the opposite experience and um uh, uh one great thing about the new technology the newer rides which is a little different from a lot of the older ones, is that the music is not all looping round and round. The music in a given area is triggered by the train entering that area or the first car entering that area. Um, uh, So in some ways I can know within a given scene what's happening. And I had lots of of different types of of video references that I could use. I could could see a, a plan from above where a, a, a little diagram of the train is is crawling around a, a diagram of the building as a whole, or a sort of VR version of what it might look like. Um, 
uh, from a particular person's point of view on the train. Um, but it's yeah, I think just you just have to the, the 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 biggest thing is you just have to go slower and you have to meet a lot and you have to discuss things and you have to not get too far because each thing that you create musically has to be sort of stress tested by the Imagineers to see if there, there are things that, that that nobody thought of that are not going to work. Um, but we, you know, yeah, you keep keep thinking about it over and over and and. Uh, I think what you what we ended up with is something that unfolds pretty much like a cartoon and it does it does a lot of the things that I I would do in a cartoon. I mean to be honest doing the music in a cartoon is already very tricky. So there've been a lot of other ad hoc <laughs> problems yes. that I'd already dealt with with Paul and Co. Um uh, uh yeah the, the 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 one of the strangest things is about recording it all is that um there's lots of music that plays only when things are delayed. So there's quite a lot of music that hardly anybody ever hears, um, these sort of Easter egg things, um, which I think we threw just as much effort into recording as everything else. There's no differentiating. Um, uh, so I'm always glad to hear about people who were on the ride when it broke down, and well, not when it broke down, but when it was <laughs> delayed by a while. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there's a huge splurge of music if you're in uh, uh, the area that we call um, tropical, oh no, not tropical torrents, um, uh, Under, I don't know, underwater. What's it called there when you're there? Yeah. Uh, oh, that's funny. Yeah, the the last bit of tropical torrents <laughs> when you're underwater. Um, um, yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, as far as the song goes, uh, I think there's a couple things to say about it. Um, one is that my involvement, I think, uh, it, it became a thing for a couple of different reasons. One is that I'm often uh, as you could tell because you and I have been emailing back and forth to set this up I try to help Chris as much as possible uh, with admin things and scheduling things and anything that I can help take off his plate uh, I try to do because he works incredibly hard and if I ever want to see him <laughs> I feel like I need to help him a bit so and um, if there's ever anything I can do to to help then I want to do that and um, when the song came up and, you know, when this job came up and they said, oh, it's going to focus on the song um, there, as far as I know, there wasn't like a specific conversation about like a lyricist or anything. It was just that Chris is going to do the music for the ride and the music included a song. And so whether they thought that meant that you were going to do all the lyrics or that someone else on the team was going to contribute lyrics, um, which has definitely happened on other attractions. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure, but there was definitely a point where Chris, like, you know, needed some help. And also one of the reasons he needed a little bit of help is because as we have already established, he's very English and uh, some of the lyrics that he writes for things sometimes tend to be a little too English. That's <laughs> uh, right. Charmingly English, but if they're supposed to sort of have an American flavor, uh, occasionally I step in and be like, I don't think that this is really going to work. Yeah, my sort of sort of natural habitat is a kind of Python-esque Gilbert and Sullivan sort of sounding uh, yeah. language. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, so I think for for a couple of different reasons like that, I I ended up coming in to to try to help him kind of finish the song. You know, he sort of started had had like a complete idea for the opening of the song, and then and then we sort of finished it together. Um, but 
but yeah, uh, also something that I think not a lot of people know is that there was another song that Chris had written that was going to be the song. Um, it was, uh, it was a fine song. It, I mean, it was, I, I want to say less interesting. It was less complex than the song, uh, than nothing can stop us now that we ended up with. Well, that was one of the worries. Yeah. That it, it might not lend itself as much to this sort of, uh, classic treatment you know the the yeah. The, the yeah well because i think originally uh you had been thinking of it more as maybe a small world kind of song where it just needed to be fun and catchy and and actually not that difficult yeah um, that it would be a easily digestible very very simple yeah exactly yeah but then um I don't maybe it was also because it was starting to annoy you i'm not sure <laughs> but the idea of having something a little bit more complex that would then lend itself better to all these other styles of music because as you go through the ride you go into all these different scenes and each scene is based musically on the song but has you know lots of different different genres that it has to embody and so so that other song i think you yeah. started to worry that it was too simplistic and that it couldn't lend itself to all these other styles of music and so so, I mean, Imagineering, as far as they were concerned, was like on board with this other song. And then- That was a good day... pun there, Elise, by the way. Oh, thank you, thank you. I <laughs> didn't even try for that. Love when that happens. Um, yeah, and one day, I mean, basically Chris is in the shower and he just sort of had this idea for another song and, and that was that. <laughs> so the first song went away <laughs> and then we went with Nothing Can Stop Us Now. And, um, and also yeah. I was gonna add like, uh, when we went out to the opening of the ride, um, which of course was just over a year ago, and it was only like a week and a half before everything shut down, which is, which was very bizarre, but, um, you know, we go on the ride and not only is, you know, this song that we wrote everywhere on the <laughs> ride, but my voice is everywhere. Yeah. On the ride. Uh -huh. That's a, awesome. Such a cool, but very bizarre experience. You know, each room, it's like, I'm a bird, I'm a mermaid, I, you know, yeah. and then I'm in the choir that has like this big choral ending. And, you know, it's you're like, there I am, there I am, there I am. It was, and then the music as you exit, there's more of me and my friends and all the line music, the cue music, that's like 50 minutes of music that's based on um, themes from the Mickey shorts uh has a bunch of singing yeah a lot of singing there we are again so <laughs> it's kind of a surreal experience yeah i feel like the 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 cue line music is it's not quite as familiar i i feel out there to the to the fan uh fandom uh, about the existence of this but yeah that's there's this big loop of completely new uh arrangements of stuff from the shorts which actually we recorded a whole year later than the stuff for the ride, didn't we? It was much closer to the hmm. to the opening of the ride. Well, you had to actually yeah. write it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's lots of uh, lots of Elise there too. <laughs> it was nice though because the shorts are so short that a lot of the melodies that Chris would come up with would be just fragments of melodies because there was never time or a need ah. for the melodies to be finished. And so it was a really nice project for him because it gave him the opportunity to go back and revisit this material and actually sort of complete it. Yeah. In many cases, I already, it was, it was, it was really quite obvious 
how the thing could be expanded because when I'd originally written the tune, I'd, I'd written a, a, you know, more of it. Um, in other cases, it wasn't something that was already written, but I just always felt like if you just went back to this and spent a day on it, you could, you could explode it into something twice as long. Um, so it was, it was really joyous. It sort of happened over a summer, didn't it? It was a really mm -hmm. joyous period going back to all the shorts and or not even all of them, not that many of them. Um, yeah, we're 20 or so of them. sort of secretly hoping maybe someone will hear this and answer our wish that when the ride opens at Disneyland, they'll give him the opportunity to write a new set of yeah. key line pieces. Because especially now with the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse on Disney Plus, you know, there's 10 episodes that have already aired and 10 more that are ready to air that have more melodies. Even more music. You know? it's so a, it's there's a, very, a lot of material there. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a, a, pro, a, a process that I could do again and still not ex, and still not exhaust all the, all the music that the shorts needed. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I love the lyrics from the song. It's very catchy and bouncy. I remember when Rafferty first announced the project at, um, I think it was, D23 Expo in maybe 2015 or 27, no, 2017. And uh, was saying, you know, people are going to fall in love with this song. It's very catchy. It's bouncy. It has that fun flair and it has a very familiar feel to it in terms of its um, arrangement. And uh, so I, I definitely think it it belongs very nicely within the Disney theme park library of, of songs. Oh, thank you. Thank you. you. And, we like uh, it <laughs> yeah just a little biased right um, <laughs> yeah and i was actually going to ask you in terms of with the disneyland version of the attraction hopefully debuting in i think 2023 um if there would be some distinctions but it might be too early too early to tell in, in terms of from the musical score standpoint for the queue something that um i i honestly don't know very much um uh so i'm not i'm not uh I'm not withholding sort of um, scoops that, are, that, that that I could be uh, giving you, um, but I gather that this will be um, the same as 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 virtually every ride, um, which are probably every single ride when they rebuild them, the new building is never exactly the same shape as the old building because it's it, you you never find a footprint of land that you need. Um, that's exactly the same footprint as you had at another place. Um, and I believe that will be the case here. Um, it's not that it's smaller. Is it possible it's bigger? I don't know, but it's a slightly different shape. And that means that the rooms, you know, it's the various sort of knock-on effects that will happen. So I believe there's, there's, no, there's no intention to change the spirit of any of it, but I believe that this, that this various, um, various visual and musical things happen as, as a result of of, of of real world things like yeah like that. for instance it might take you know it where in the original ride it took three seconds to get from room a to room b maybe in this one you have to like loop back around another room so it's actually going to take 20 seconds to mm. get from room a to room b so that means gotcha. that the musical track has to change a little bit they'll they'll think of some delightful thing to happen while you're while you're going down there and then i'll have to do something musical um uh and uh, and we'll have to record it to make um, yeah to 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 do the same thing. There's also there's a sort of um, everyone involved is such a perfectionist that you come away with all these mm -hmm. all these things that um, these tiny tiny teeny things that uh, I mean I think this ride came together incredibly well. I think it's 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 going down in in the in the 
sort of WDI handbooks as being a a model ride because it because because everything went so well. Um, but yeah, we all we all approach the second one just like you do if you kind of extend your house or uh, or you know you do a, you you bake cookies and then you come to bake the cookies again. We've all got these private little lists of things we'd like to um, we'd like to do differently if we're going to record bits of music again or you know um, certain certain computers that that never quite did the exact thing that we wanted them to do, so we had to come up with a workaround and all these little things. So uh, um, it'll be fun to revisit it. Yeah, yeah, it'll actually be fun. Well, I look forward to experiencing the attraction in person when I can make it out to Disney World. Uh, hopefully next year we'll we'll see. Um, but yeah, in terms of the song, um, it's as I mentioned, very catchy and and just endearing. And I'm just uh, I, I just really appreciate your your continued investment in really through the shorts and through the attractions, um, really honoring the spirit of, of Mickey Mouse and, and again, allowing all of us to, to experience it, not just on screen, but in effort for many folks in the theme park. So that's just a, a really cool honor and responsibility that you both have been shouldering um, for, for this past decade. Definitely <laughs> feels like what you just said, an honor and a responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's fabulous. Yeah. Before, before we wrap up, I, I want to make sure I ask um, you, Elise, a specific question that I think is um, extremely timely, given the massive success of Marvel Studios' uh, first series on Disney Plus WandaVision and your role on the project as a, as a vocalist for the opening titles. Could you talk about um, briefly what that was like for you and ultimately um, now being heard by countless millions of people all around <laughs> the world through yeah. the very catchy one division one division yes. yeah I, i'm a horrible singer you can take care of that <laughs> but i just want to honor the fact that that's your your voice uh, whether people realize it or not is now um embedded in their brains <laughs> yes sorry about that uh <laughs> no uh that was so much fun um it was actually i think we recorded those in september of last year and um it was my first in-person gig since the pandemic closed everything down um and i only have done a couple of things uh even now uh there's still you know so many hurdles that you have to jump over so a lot of us who've been working have been recording on our own home studio setups uh, which for the most part works pretty well but if you can be in a room with people i mean that's obviously preferable uh so so it was just exciting to have a gig in person and uh i have told other people this and they always find it really interesting that many many times i would say this happens more often than not we actually don't know what the project is until we get there. So that was the case with WandaVision. Um, we, all we really knew was, you know, what day and what time to show up and what the studio was. Uh, but beyond that, we didn't have any information until we got there and we saw what the music was sitting on the stand. So um, again, not only do we not know what the project is, but normally we don't get any of the music in advance. And, so yeah, when we got there, uh, you know, I wasn't even sure what the style of music was that we were going to sing, um, whether it was going to be super choral or what. And then 
I opened up the music and I was like, oh my gosh, it's songs. And it's like Kristen and Bobby songs. And this is amazing. (laughs) Kind of freaked out a little bit. Um, But yeah, it was so much fun. Um, We did, there was a group of nine of us and we did, I think they did all of the theme songs in one day. you know, it was for efficiency, but also COVID related stuff that we could, you know, it was better if we could get everything out in one day so they didn't have to test us again. Um, but yeah, so we did, uh, we started the day with the very first song, the uh, Newlywed Couple song. And uh, and then we did the one that you just sang that really people really latched on to. Hey, it's the sixties. You gotta love it. Yeah. And the, and I love the like animated um, opening that was like, I dream of genie or bewitched is so good so clever um and then i think i took a little break and uh the guys and one of the other female singers did uh agatha all along um which of course the female singer ended up being replaced by katherine Hahn, who plays the character um but it's it's funny with that one like I'm of course just slightly jealous that there were no uh, sopranos or altos on that song because it really went wild. But um, you know, we all went back in the studio and we're listening to the song, having because we didn't know what the show was about really. I mean, they they told us what the show was, and so we knew who the main characters were, but obviously we didn't know any more than that. And there was like a you know a person from Marvel who was in the room who's entire job it was to make sure that none of us did anything we weren't supposed to like posting anything on social media or taking pictures of the music or anything um so yeah we just you know so I heard the song and it was great but I'm like who's Agatha I don't know <laughs> uh, and then it yeah then it turns into this like huge sensation but um yeah and then we recorded that which I loved loved love and um Kristen and Bobby, uh, uh, the Lopez's, of course, who did like the Frozen songs. And I was lucky enough to work on Frozen 2 and be in the room with them on that as well. Um, they were in New York. That's where they live. And, you know, with COVID and everything, it was safer for them to not be there. Um, but they were on a Zoom call with us. And so we had, you know, we had Zoom going on our phones and our phones like sitting on the music stand. And so we could see them and they could see us giving feedback and it was just really a fun session. Like, you know, honestly, some sessions uh, can be really stressful. You know, maybe the project is like the composer is really stressed out because it's been like a year and a half and they've had to rewrite the music 50 times and they just want it to be over, you know, and you can like feel the stress. But this project was just everyone was having such a good time. So um, I just can't say enough how grateful I was to be there and then and then you know for it to turn into something that people loved so much I mean you always hope that that's going to be the case but you never really know until something comes out how it's going to resonate with people so it's really been an honor and I have to say just um you know publicly to thank them they credited all of us as artists on these tracks which never happens I mean really never happens like we often have to fight to get credited at all in the end credits of projects. And that's a whole longer discussion that I won't go into, but um, singers are very often, and the instrumentalists as well, are very often not credited on projects. And, um, And for them to not only credit us, but to credit us as artists, 
is kind of unprecedented and I really can't thank them enough for doing that. Yeah, so you pop up on Spotify, don't you? Yeah, we actually pop, like it streams, you know, on the artist line on Spotify with our names. I mean, I I can't think of another project that did that. So that was a really big deal for us. And so we really appreciate that. I'm glad you shared that component because I think that was even, mind you, not being embedded in, in the industry, but as a as a viewer and consumer, I noticed it quite explicitly, the, the mm-hmm. all of you as artists, your vocalist names, like that's, that is distinct. So I appreciate you recognizing that. And oh, that's great. Right. So that's, that's awesome. Um, and, and the parallel, I think, um, between WandaVision and Mickey Mouse, even though they seem like polar opposites, is just the notion of each of you in your distinct ways, finding ways of, of, really uh, translating the spirit of different uh, musical elements of the past into something current. So whether it be the, mm-hmm. the theme songs for WandaVision or even with the Mickey Mouse shorts, um, you Chris with being able to hearken back to whether it be, um, you know, kind of a, a 1920s ragtime or, or whatever the case may be, that very much feels present in the end product, but not necessarily a spoof, but rather an extension of of the character of the spirit of that of whatever the style of music is that you're working on. Right, right. I always feel like um, these are all great styles that at some point people loved and were very popular. And there might be a lot of people, especially younger people, that don't know anything about them. It's great to think of them hearing it's a bit of ragtime or a bit of uh, vaudeville or something and just finding it very charming and interesting and it's sparking something um uh yeah i think if you if you do it if you do it with a sense of fun um and a sense of sort of zest it doesn't sound dusty and it doesn't even sound you know uh like you're just copying something it just sounds like you're having fun and um uh yeah, I think because in, in, in both cases, because you're jumping around and because it's serving a purpose, it actually feels fresh. It doesn't feel old. It's sort of it's it's um, it's uh, it's playing with the past rather than just um, being like a museum piece. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, kind of to, to wrap up, um, I know you mentioned earlier and I'm familiar with this, too, that there are more wonderful world of Mickey Mouse shorts to debut on Disney Plus. So we'll hear more of your music from that. Can you get can you tease anything about uh, a style or a characteristic of your music or perhaps any songs that are in those shorts? That's interesting. Well, yeah, I, we could say a little bit. <laughs> I can I can say a lot of our favorites are in this yes. are in this this uh, this second because they're all done. They're, they're all done. in production. They were all done in one lump. Um, there's one with a big, a big role played by a song. Um, yeah, where that's that sort of about. the central feature of the plot is around a song. Uh, so that was that's those opportunities are always so so nice because, you know, in episodes like that, we're involved from kind of the very beginning. Like we mm. got involved in that one before we even saw any sketches or animatics. Yeah, didn't that's we? right. They just sent us the the script. Uh, so it's always really fun to be involved from the beginning on that when music is usually one of the last things that comes on. Um, actually, the flip side of that is that one of our other favorite songs that we did for this upcoming episode was completely after um, everything had been animated, uh, like all the final animation was done and there was sort of a, a montage that needed a song in the background. And so 
Bless you. Um, so we had to uh, craft a song around something that was completely done. So it, you know, there, there's different different challenges uh, that come, mm. you know, depending on what stage you get involved. But and there wasn't a lot of time. But I'm I'm intrigued yes, about that experience. That was very quick because there's something about <laughs> something about having to do something quickly when it's a song where the spirit and the energy energy of it kind of um mm. there's no time for it to get it's like it's more spontaneous yeah, yeah exactly yeah i've been thinking about that we had a, we had a lot of fun writing it kind of this was over christmas wasn't it um and yeah had to get it together quickly um sort of had to trust our first instincts in a way that was the one thing like, yeah not, not not futz with it uh endlessly it is um as i have said to other people it's a bit like Mickey Mouse meets Tina Turner. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That song. So, which is also fun because um, the the other song that we were talking about that uh, is sort of the focus of that episode is in a more traditional for us style, like kind of like Nothing Can Stop Us Now, where it sort of, sort of feels like an older song. Mm. And so when we get the opportunity to write things in different styles, uh, that's always a fun challenge. Um, so yeah, I think the episodes that are coming out, I think people are really, really going to like, I, most of our favorite episodes are in that bunch. So there are definitely check them out. There are some more nods aren't there to Disney things. Oh, there's yeah, there's some really, really funny, uh, inside jokes and, and things. Um, it's very, very clever, very clever sort of, um, Disney heritage jokes there's, i'm still, still laughing about there's one there's one episode obviously i can't say anything about it but i mean every time we get to the climax i just lose it it's so funny yeah um, it plays on a relationship between two famous disney characters that's this thing about yes. the two of them has never been i love how like you knew exactly yeah. what episode i was talking about um, it's yeah. never been exploited, but it's so funny. Oh, <laughs> it's really people are gonna love that episode. Yeah, man, it's really hard to not tell you yeah. more about them. I know. So I'm sorry. Funny. No, I don't want to open up a can of worms. No, right? no we're sorry. Radio, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a thing that we can't talk about, but it's really great. It's Wish so you funny. knew what it was. Let's just laugh about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but no, I think people are going to really love these new ones when they come out. And we think they're coming out sometime in summer, although we don't have exact release dates yet. So that's right. we shall all keep our eyes peeled to Disney Plus to see when they come out. Sounds good. Yeah, those wonderful world ones. What I love, too, is because they are a bit longer than the traditional Mickey Mouse series shorts, is that it gives us more time to really explore um, really captivating storylines. I love the one on the House of Tomorrow. Um, oh, that one is yeah. so funny. Which just had so many nods, but it was just so, you know, again, playful, I think is a very key word. So, oh my gosh, I'm really intrigued by what's in store. <laughs> um, are there any other projects that either of you or both of you would like to promote that you're currently working on? Hmm. There's one thing that we both worked on. But it's not Disney, though. Are we allowed to talk oh. about something? That's oh, of course, not absolutely. Go for it. <laughs> it feels weird though because almost all of our work recently has been Disney. So yeah. to do something that wasn't Disney is, it feels a little bit like we're cheating on Disney. Frisson of naughtiness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. um, it's a show for uh, Apple TV Plus, and it's called Schmigadoon. So if you're a musical theater fan, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that you're going to like it. 
uh, you're gonna love it actually yeah. if you're a musical theater if you're fan. A musical theater fan, you're gonna lose it. Yeah, and if you're not, it's still really, really funny. You don't have to be that's right steeped in musical theater history to like it. Um, but yeah, the funny thing with this project was um I got hired to do um demos on the show. So there were like four of us that got hired to sing all the demos, um, most of which uh were replaced either by the um singers, like the ensemble that they hired uh to do the singing on um, all of the pieces or uh, by the actors, of course, who were um, all real like musical theater, who's who, you know, super talented. Um, uh, there was one thing that I recorded that um, is a solo that actually is staying in the final, uh, which is very exciting for me. Um, it's not my face, <laughs> it's my voice coming out of someone else's face, <laughs> which is always a bit of a disconcerting experience, but sure. nevertheless, very, very happy about that. But then like at least a couple of months, maybe more than that, yeah. after I finished my work on the project, uh, they approached Chris about doing the underscore, not knowing that we were married. Yeah, no, no connection at all. Just, uh, just really funny that that happened. Just seemed yeah. to uh, underscore the fact that our aesthetics are really similar, <laughs> that, <laughs> that different people would think of us for the same kind of project. So when I first spoke to Cinco Paul, who is the showrunner, I had to confess, I or, I've already heard all of these songs <laughs> because my wife's shown them to me because she's working on it. And he looked horror struck at first, like, what the hell? How do you know? And then you know, just, just for about three seconds. Um, and then he was delighted because he 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 knew all about her and knew her voice and they'd worked together to, to on that song and um, he was saying how great her voice was and it, it was all fine. Um, He's very nice. He's fantastic. The show is going to be really really great. Um, so so he has written the songs. Uh, yes. The, the, the songs and are, they're very good and they're extraordinarily good. They're yeah. they're great. Um, and and the song arrangements, uh, everything else to do with the songs um, have been done uh by a team in new york um absolutely uh top people uh doug besterman and david chase and scott how do you say scott's surname oh, scott research yeah. yes i've never never heard scott's surname <laughs> i'm sorry scott if you're listening they i mean they were just so good every time i looked at their scores i was learning things uh, but then i was hired to do the underscore that gets you uh you know from one song to another um and and that's been a wonderful, you know, and using the songs in order to in order to construct that, very much like a an Oklahoma or a Mary Poppins, or a Pinocchio or something. Um, and so mm. there was actually an, another bit of nerdy study for me, looking mm. at all those films in that way, which I'd never I'd never looked quite so explicitly that way before. Seeing the way that that those old uh, film composers would use the would use the songs as the basis for everything they did. Um, right. Yeah. There's another Gosh. thing that Chris has coming up on Netflix, but don't think we're allowed to talk about it yet. Right. But maybe, yeah, maybe when when we are, we'll let you know about it because it it's probably something that would be up your alley. So mm, another fun one. Yeah, another another good project. Really, really interesting one. All these teases, I can yeah. hardly no, take it. So sorry. <laughs> no. No, this is great. I'm I'm excited for both of you for the, for those projects. Um, I'd love to just quickly ask you some Disney opinion related sure. questions yeah. that I ask all of my guests. Um, and so these first three are music related, and then I'm going to ask you one that's specific um, to your work. Um, so um, maybe if you can just uh, go back and forth, Chris and Elise, and answering. Quick fun. Um, but start off, what, 
Yeah, quick fire, pretty much, but I'd love some context if you want to offer it. So the first one is what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Mm. Uh, for me, I'm pretty sure it was Mary Poppins. Uh, I watched Mary Poppins a lot and I feel like I knew the music in lots of different ways, you know, from sheet music and other things. Uh, I think my Disney upbringing was a lot, a lot more scattered and, and not as intense as yours. Mm, of course uh, you would have the most British. Yeah, yeah seriously. Obvious, <laughs> obvious answer. <laughs> um, I think for me, there's sort of two that jump out. Um, one is The Little Mermaid. I, you know, as I said, I was really young and impressionable when it came out. And I can picture the cassette tape that I had of the Little Mermaid soundtrack, which I'm sure I wore out as I did the VHS copy. Um, but then when I got a little bit older, I was absolutely obsessed with the Hunchback soundtrack. Yes. Obsessed. And I think it makes sense now because I do so much choral singing in my, you know, in my career, both for films, but also as a member of the LA Master Chorale. And that score, the choir stuff is just so good. It's like so good, <laughs> it makes me angry. Sometimes I just make Chris listen to like the sanctuary scene, you know, like when, mm. when she's gonna be burned and he like swoops down and saves her and yells sanctuary. The choral music is so good in that. I, right. like, I loved it so much actually that um, there was a local production uh, in Thousand Oaks down here, just outside of LA that needed a choir, you know, and they had like no money to pay any of us, but I was like, I don't care. I'll just go sing. I just wanted to sing the music. Uh, and yeah, oh, the writing in that is just brilliant. So that's gotta be my answer. So I have to commend you both because not only are each of those Mary Poppins and Hunchback um, fantastic choices, but they're also very popular um, answers among uh, past guests on the podcast. So ah. um, I think that there's definitely a, a connection there among fellow fellow musicians and Disney fans to, to those uh, songs and scores. So very nice. Uh, next question for you is, and um, I'm curious what this might be, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Ooh. Gosh. Um. Well, all day today, I've had nothing but service now stuck in my head. But I'm not going to say that. We can't bear <laughs> Those are some catchy lyrics, right? <laughs> oh, my God. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh. Boy. Oh. Oh. Go, do you have an answer? Go ahead. I'm still searching. Well, it was only two minutes ago. Oh, I have an answer yeah. from like um, 30 minutes ago in our conversation. Um, go ahead. I, I had uh, Mr. Banks's song from Mary Poppins in my head because mm. we were talking about it. Um, I, oh, like literally two minutes. Yeah, ago, yeah. Really count. <laughs> uh, okay, well, you go. Well, I was going to say um, when we were talking about Disneyland and um, the sort of function that it serves and you sort of understanding, I had making memories stuck in my head from the sing along oh, yes. video. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh, yes. That's what Disneyland does. Like, I feel like it's, it's, Right. It's almost not even like the experience while you're there. It's like the experience that you remember and you take home with you. Yeah. Making memories. It's making memories. Distilled afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I also I, I spent a lot of time as a kid watching those sing along tapes. And I'm so pleased that you can find some like bootleg copies on YouTube because <laughs> I've also forced Chris to watch those. And we definitely watched that one, didn't That's we? Correct. Yeah. Yes. 
Uh, yeah, I often have actually the song from the beginning of Sing Along Song stuck in my head. That join right in, sing along with your favorite Disney song. That and the guy's like, but I don't know all the songs. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't go wrong. I, yeah. Oh, and sorry, I'm yeah, giving you too many. Let's answers. go for it, Elise. Just embrace every, it. Every single time we're like sitting in bed, and one of us says, "I gotta get up." It's the yeah. Winnie the Pooh song. I gotta get up. I gotta get going. Gonna see a friend of mine. It's a little over me. He's oh yeah. Winnie's buzz. <laughs> I love him because he's just Pooh Bear, Winnie the Pooh Bear. That was a big part of my childhood too. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I I had a very similar childhood, I think, because yeah, the that theme song is endlessly appealing and memorable. Um, so I would recommend if you want to do more of a, a revisit of sing along songs, we actually did an episode of the podcast um, back in September um, ah. on, on the sing along songs and its history. And we did a Ooh. lot of focus on Disneyland fun. Let me tell you, Elise, I'm going to check that to out uncover. for sure. Mm, yes. Wow. Some gold there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I loved your rendition of the theme song, by the way. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I think if we need to do like a, a remix, um, yeah, you'd be the right yeah, person for that. Call me up. I'm on board. <laughs> Sounds good. Third music question. Um, what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Oh, wow. Oh, man. Very interesting. Well, while we are thinking... I could certainly say my current like hobby horse is that the underscore is very underrated in a lot of these things. Um, uh, it's just extraordinary artistry by these people that were also doing the underscore for Rogers and Hammerstein movies and things like that, um, using the songs. Um, uh, yeah, these areas of the movies that don't make it onto the soundtracks and, you know, don't have any lyrics. Um, <laughs> what, why, what are you laughing? She's I'm laughing. La She's giggling laughing at me. preemptively at myself for the answer I'm about to give. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, I may regret this answer later, but I'm going to go <laughs> with um, Oliver and Company. I really love the songs in Oliver and Company. <laughs> you um, do. You do. She does. I do. I liked that, that song that Bette Midler sings as mm -hmm. the very pampered poodle. Oh, of course. Um, I actually did. I can't remember now whether I actually went through with this, but I auditioned for a local talent show singing that song and like had like a poodle tail. This is like oh, when I was that's a kid. fantastic. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I had I had the um, the score like the sheet music, uh, easy piano version or whatever to Oliver and Company. So I used to sit at the piano a lot and play the songs, that one in particular. But um, I mean, there's so mm. many good ones. There's like yeah. the Billy Joel song and is it Huey Lewis in the beginning? I mean, come right. on. <laughs> I remember there was one weekend, like Chris works absolutely nonstop. So if we have any time together, it's really a big deal. Um, but there was one weekend where we were like, okay, I'm going to show you a movie that you haven't seen. And you're going to show me a movie that I haven't seen. And do you remember what you chose? I don't, but what I chose was Oliver and Company. <laughs> and I remember we told somebody that and they're like, that was your movie that of all the movies that you could choose. And I, I was like, no regrets. Oliver and Company is great. There was an era when I used to try and show you things very, very late at night and you would, you always fell asleep. Like, because you showed me things like moon. Yeah, things like moon. Like, and, how am I supposed to stay awake in that? Uh, 
And now, and now it's Pavlovian. I think if you try and watch Moon or Amelie or something, you'll just fall asleep. Oh, don't throw me under the bus for Amelie. I have no, nothing was, against Amelie. It was really, really tired. late. It was like three in the morning. Okay. No, 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 no. Uh, no, but like good bits of underscore or just interstitial stuff that I think are just so amazing and 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 we don't give them enough credit are like um, uh, the middle of bobbing along from Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Oh, um, things song. like the there's a tenor sax solo that a fish plays. <laughs> it's so good. It's so out there. You captured it, Chris. Totally <laughs> authentic. You, so you, did, you did. It's uh, that they, they were so um, experimental and so unafraid to try things. Um, and I don't know if we give them quite enough credit uh, for that kind of thing. That whole sequence is just so hilarious and amazing. Um, and there's, there's a, lot, a lot of those dotted around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll consider your selection as bed knobs and broomsticks then. Oh, great. Okay. Actually, yes. fine. Another bloody English <laughs> movie. You are so English. You just like David Tomlinson. It's quite all right. That's, that's right. That's, that's, that's right. a thread. Yeah, someday yeah. when we have kids, your mustache is going to grow in. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, and the movie has to have English uh, English kids in, clearly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think he's still going to struggle with the fact that our kids will have American accents. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm going to have to teach them to speak like Jane and Michael Banks. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that'd be great. That's um, a funny sort of bag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> I think you That's, both just need to, you know, in your spare time to start a talk show. I think that would be a right. very, very wonderful career as well. Yeah. They're not yeah. very quick fire, these answers, are they? Yes, sorry. we're not very good at But these tangents are great. So I love okay. following them. So. Okay, a few. <laughs> um, last question for you. So this is a distinct question that I have not asked any other guest, and I think it's appropriate for posing to both of you. Is there a a unique or niche musical style that you have yet to tap or or illustrate in any of the Mickey Mouse shorts that you would long to compose for Chris or sing within from a genre standpoint, Elise? Mm, that's mm. a good question. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I'm trying to think of a style that you haven't done on Mickey Mouse. Uh, well, I'll tell you something I had well, there are two there are two things that have happened and they sort of converge into the same thing um and this is so elise is going to do I'm an eye roll terrified at what he's about the, to say the size of the moon i mean my background is really <laughs> classical music and my my postgrad was all you know sort of 18th century music baroque music um i had thought when we did the springtime episode that it might all end up being sort of like Vivaldi or something because that, that was sort of um, how Paul pitched it to me and in the end it made much more sense for it to be a lot madder than that and a big smorgasbord and a lot of it's much ends up sounding much more like Tchaikovsky or or, or Johann Strauss or something um, and I also had always thought that it would be hilarious if we did an episode that was like a little opera where all the characters were singing constantly like an opera so if if there's, a, if there's ever a chance for them all to be wearing like periwigs and heels and beauty <laughs> spots and doing <laughs> doing like a baroque <laughs> opera, I think that would be really, really funny. But I think I might be the only person in the world who thought that was a good idea. Um, well, no, I think that's interesting. I You've never actually told me that before. Have I not? Oh, that's we've interesting. Not, we've not talked about this. Well, we talked about it because um, one of the new episodes, the Wonderful World episodes was uh, Brave Little Squire. And uh, that was, I, th- I think that was an idea that 
had existed, maybe not that exact storyline, but like them going back to like that era of time. Uh, and that was not something that Disney was interested in for the previous iteration of the shorts. That's right. But then um, th- they were able to do it in Wonderful World. So so maybe. Yes, uh, that's right. Because, it, yeah, this would also be in the past. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're also open minded. If I could think of a, if we could think of a story and actually pitch something to pitch them, then I, there's no reason They'd why probably go for, go it. for it. Yeah. Um, have you? Did you? Uh, uh, hmm. It is already so varied, isn't it? Yeah. I. I yeah. <laughs> I well, yeah. I was Question. gonna say something like like a more contemporary style of music, like a current yeah. style of music, um, but I don't know. I'm not sure we do a great job there's, there's a very brief moment in one of the <laughs> upcoming episodes that like uh touches on some more current styles of music that's and right i think maybe we just get away with it but yeah. i'm not sure i'd want to do like a whole episode right i could do it for eight like seconds that. exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> just a snippet right yeah uh no i know i think that that opera idea is really interesting oh, oh so i was gonna say um that for anyone who is a fan of the shorts, if you remember the episode Bad Ear Day, uh, which funny enough, it was a a little cousin of mine. Like she was probably about two or three at the time. Yeah, She was obsessed with that episode, that just that one episode she wanted to watch over and over and over again. We always found that so funny. She would squeal with laughter. It's such a bizarre episode. (laughs) His ears blow off and they become hockey pucks and... (laughs) Uh, that anthropomorphic great, ears yes yeah that great moment where where he can't hear goofy and that he steals goofy's ears and goofy <laughs> that is brilliant <laughs> so good but um at the end you know he the whole point is that he's trying to get to Minnie, and uh and, you know he says oh so what are we seeing and she's like the opera and there's a chicken who's going like that chicken is paul rudish I just want the world to know that because he is so funny. In he does that. such a good job there. Yeah. Yeah. He's also the scooter in uh, in Paris, you know, the Croissant de Triomphe episode. That's right. He, he does a lot of those little voices. A lot of bit parts. But um, I yeah. really do think his starring turn was that chicken singing <laughs> opera. So, so yeah, if we can have more of that, I definitely right. would for that. <laughs> yeah, you would be here for that. Yes. Yeah. Let's just talk about Paul's IMDb profile and credit him as the chicken in the in the bad year. Yeah, episode, yeah right. Sure that's there. His crowning yeah. achievement. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, Dave Wasson as the walrus. Um, in um, uh, uh, dog show and, and uh, three legged three legged race. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm sorry. Sorry. We we obviously love the shorts and we love the people who make the shorts and we talk about this a lot and can talk about it for a very long time yeah. and not get bored. Uh, I think we both feel really, really lucky to be involved with this show. Yeah, that's right. Well, your, your pride and enthusiasm is palpable. I felt it. I, you know, the shorts I'm there, there are a lot of things that make me smile when I watch something that I'm enjoy that I'm really enjoying, but very few things that really cause me to laugh aloud and, and find really uproarious. And I think the Mickey Mouse shorts um, really accomplish that very effectively. And, and certainly just the musical flavors as I've described are just so appealing um, as a listener. And 
Um, so I want to express my appreciation. And before we go, I want to make sure that our listeners know how to follow you both um, in terms of your projects, um, if you're on social media, to, to relay that information as well. Yeah, hmm. Twitter's probably the best place yeah. to find us. Yeah, I'm at Mr. Chris Willis. And I am at Elise M. Willis. Yeah, we should generally we keep generally those updated, share, yeah. share things when we can. Mine's very yeah. nerdy. So if, if, yes, if music yourself. theory um, makes you, you know, have allergic reactions, then I don't want to be responsible for anyone's death. So <laughs> I feel I should give fair warning. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> like nuts or something. And then mine is often making fun of him being nerdy. Yeah. So, you know, we, we kind of balance <laughs> each other. well all i have to say is nothing can stop both of you from producing really entertaining music and uh really just adding a bit of joy uh to our lives via you know the mickey mouse shorts and certainly other projects i know we didn't have time to discuss all of them because they are so numerous but um i just want to thank you both for your time for your generous um, engagement and and ultimately what's still to come in terms of the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse. So thank you both, Elise and Chris, much appreciated. Oh, thanks for having us. Oh, thank you. This thanks is really much. fun. Yeah. And many, many thanks go out to Chris and Elise for joining me on Notably Disney. It was a most entertaining, informative, and just a genuinely enjoyable conversation. I am super thrilled to check out the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse cartoon shorts that will be debuting soon. As mentioned, there are 10 of them on Disney Plus at the moment, and uh, more will hopefully debut this summer, and you can certainly check out uh, their Nothing Can Stop Us Now song if you visit Disney's Hollywood Studios and hop aboard Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Thank you again, Chris and Elise. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company. 